Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to RSI Help Radio. I'm Deborah Quilter, and RSI Help Radio is dedicated to bringing you the latest news and information about repetitive strain injury. Now, many people with RSI try yoga as a way of alleviating the pain and gaining strength and flexibility. Little do they know that the standard yoga class can contain many contraindicated poses for people with RSI. It really helps to know a little bit about the anatomy of the poses to understand why this is so. Here to enlighten us about the underlying anatomy of yoga poses is Leslie Kamenov, a yoga educator inspired by the tradition of PKD Desikachar. For over three decades, he has led workshops and developed specialized education in the fields of yoga, breath anatomy, and body work. His approach to teaching combines intellectual rigor spontaneity and humor, and is always evolving. Leslie is the founder of The Breathing Project, a New York City-based educational nonprofit dedicated to teaching individualized breath-centered yoga. He's the co-author with Amy Matthews of the best-selling book, Yoga Anatomy. So I can't wait to welcome Leslie to our show. We're really going to have a good time here. So welcome, you Leslie. You say your old friend, Leslie, because we've known My each other old for friend, a while. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Just such a switch, because uh, you interviewed me years ago when my first book came out. So here we are, reversing roles. I know. That was uh, like an early, early Internet radio thing, right, when everyone yeah, was using yeah, yeah. up modems and AOL. Yeah, and I went to this this place. I remember <laughs> it was like a big yeah. convention hall. But anyway, yeah. let's plunge in, because you're a, a wealth of information, and we're never going to get to everything, but... In your book, you made a point. You note that the hand and foot are somewhat similar in Mm -hmm. bone structure. Four-fifths of the foot structure is dedicated to weight-bearing, but these proportions are completely reversed in the hand. And you say that when you use the hand in weight-bearing poses, the hand is at a structural disadvantage, and you must compensate for this when you prepare and execute such poses. So can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of poses that people might be doing and the kind of risks they might experience in these poses? Sure, I could. But just to to frame it in even a more uh, sort of understandable way, you know, imagine the situation is reversed, that you're using the feet to do something that the hands are better suited for, like, I don't know, typing a novel, right? Um, Yeah. And, you know, you're not going to ask yourself after, you know, an hour and a half of trying to do that why your lower back or hip joints would be sore uh, mm-hmm. because you're clearly using, you know, those extremities or something that they haven't really evolved to do very well. Um, and so when you get into a yoga class where a lot of the poses are weight-bearing on the upper extremity, um, it shouldn't be all that surprising that, if that's not being done with a lot of consciousness and a lot of attention to how to get that to happen in a healthy way, that you're going to end up with you know, wrist pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, you know, all of the things people you know, complain about. Not to mention, if you go in with an existing problem like RSI, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. why it would maybe inflame it or, or, or make it worse. Just, just the fact that you're in a yoga class doesn't mean everything you do in the class is going to be helpful to you. So uh, oh, I just want to sure. sort of frame it in that uh, more of a general way before talking about the specifics of the uh, of the anatomy, um, but it also does point to something about weight bearing 
on an extremity. You know, people don't actually bear weight very well on their legs and feet, which mm-hmm. which are <laughs> specifically evolved to do that, right? So we often tell people, learn to stand on your legs and feet before you begin holding weight up on your arms. And that's just sort that's of sequencing the... Yeah, well, that's sort of sequencing the... Um, skill set in a way uh, that views arm supports, hands, upper body supports as kind of an intermediate level skill, uh, which is the way I like to view it. Uh, so we do really start the conversation about weight bearing and support mm-hmm. with the feet and the legs and then say, okay, now how can you get your hand to do something similar to what your foot does, even though it's really not structurally suited for that. Uh, and it's not just, by the way, the proportion of the bones, as you mentioned in the beginning. Um, it's also the fact that your your foot, if you look at its overall structure, is, is twisted um, 90 degrees from front to back. The heel bone, the calcaneus, is mm-hmm. upright. It's, it's in a vertical relationship to, to the ground, whereas the forefoot, the front of the foot, is parallel to it, right? So, yes. that's, 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 it's, so the foot is actually kind of a twisted plate in that sense. The hand is not. The, the back of the hand, the, the wrist area, is in the same plane as the front of the hand, right? Um, so the next structure up from that that actually can spiral around and have a similar relationship to the floor as the heel is your elbow. So a, a lot of the alignment cueing that you hear in mm-hmm. yoga classes that are in, that's intended to make the hand more able to support weight is to drop your elbow behind your wrist. So the, the, the instructors that are giving that cue, whether they know it or not, are actually trying to incorporate the forearm mm-hmm. into the weight-bearing process that the hand is trying to do. Um, so when you're dropping your weight behind the wrist, that gets it slightly decreases the angle, that 90-degree angle of the wrist. Am I picturing that right? It does, well, it, what it does is it takes the, the tiny little wrist bones, which are at a disadvantage mm-hmm. in bearing mm-hmm. weight, and it kind of integrates them with a spiral you can put into your forearm where your, where your radius crosses over your ulna, which are your two mm-hmm. forearm bones, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it actually has the effect of, of lifting as much as possible the, the structures within your hand that can sort of serve as an arch, similar so to what you have in your So you're sort of creating an, a little copper a arc in, in the palm of the hand as well as the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But again, again, you know, this is a conversation that I would have with a student that was just beginning to explore the possibilities of holding up weight on their upper extremity. Um, and for me, that's actually several steps down the road in terms of someone's understanding of their body. We, we always start with the foot because you can't say, okay, now we're going to get your hand to do mm-hmm. something similar to what your foot does if you don't understand what the hell your foot's doing, right? So having that understanding of the foot plays into making your hand work better as a weight-bearing extremity. And when we were talking earlier, you were talking about something that's very dear to my heart, proportionality. Mm -hmm. You know, the foot is, it's not carrying all of the weight on the calcaneus. I mean, the the weight is distributed over several bones. Sure. And you're talking even in standing, you know, the the way that we carry ourselves can make such a difference, just standing on our feet. Yes, um, actually what we, were, what we were talking about was um, 
you know, embedded in the definition of RSI, repetitive stress or strain injury, uh, mm-hmm. is a definition of what healthy movement and support is, right? Because all you have to do is think of the exact opposite. So, so if we want to simplify the definition of RSI, it would be uh, too much movement coming from too few places repeated too many times. Yes. Right? And, and so that's repetitive stress. So the opposite of that would be something like um, a little bit of movement coming from a lot of places, right? Getting all of the available structures in the body to participate to whatever degree they can in a given movement or a posture or a pose. You know, and we say the same thing about static poses, asanas, as we do about vinyasas, which are more of the movement things. You know, we ask a little bit of movement from a lot of places, or another way to say that is well-distributed movement. But the same thing is true when we're still in a pose, is that if you, we tell people, if you feel the sensation mm-hmm. in your body of remaining in that pose building up in just a couple of areas, mm-hmm. you have to reconsider what you're doing, because that's not what we want. We want to have an evenly distributed uh, sensation in the body of what is happening in that pose. Even if you're doing something like downward facing dog, which, you know, your, your weight is on your arms and hands, you should not be feeling that all in your wrist. Your body is actually communicating with you. It's sending you a message. It's saying, hey, reconsider what you're doing because all of the weight of this pose is falling in this one place. And if you keep doing that over and over and over again, you know, you're going to create a, a real problem or exacerbate, you know, uh, an existing problem. So ideally, in something like downward-facing dog, mm-hmm. your feet and spine and the legs of the bone, they're all sort of transmitting weight. Exactly. There's and a transmission of weight. That's exactly how I would put it. There's a transmission of weight-bearing forces that goes from bone to bone to bone, which is what the skeletal structure is for. And, and that transmission of weight passing through the skeletal system from bone to bone, you know, what is, what is in that, what is a bone-to-bone connection? It's a joint, right? So the joint space has to be in a balanced state. And if it's not in a balanced state, it's going to start sending you messages and say, you know, basically joint pain is your joint saying, there is unbalanced weight passing through me and mm-hmm. you need to make an adjustment. So a lot of what we teach people is really simple. It's just listening to your body and knowing how to interpret these messages and mm-hmm. using this information as, as a way of you know, uh, adjusting or adapting what you're doing. And, and once, you're, once you're willing to do that and you stop caring about how the, the pose looks, you know, we're not posing for yoga magazines or calendars in class. We're trying to do something functional for our bodies. So, you know, when we take a more function-oriented approach and let the form of what we're doing serve that function, then we're moving more towards healthy movement. And, and, um, but that implies away that you're injury. willing to take time to go at your own pace and sort of sense and feel your way into the pose and ask yourself, how, right. am, I, you know, how am I feeling right now? Where yeah. is my weight right now? And sort of finding the place where it's right and that implies that you can't be thinking about keeping up with the teacher or the person next to you on the mat next door. Well, yes, yes. And, and the, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say the majority of classes. I don't really know at this point what's going on exactly in, in classes that get called yoga. 
but I would say it's a safe bet that if you're in a large group class that's moving at a very fast pace and the main reason people are there is to get a workout or a good sweat or to make mm-hmm. their asses look good in their yoga pants, then, you know, this sort of detail may be overlooked. Um, and that doesn't mean it can't happen in a group class because that's actually what we train people to do here at The Breathing Project. Uh, a lot of our students here are other yoga teachers or even people who teach people how to become yoga teachers. So, so how to create the kind of environment in a group class where people have the freedom to go at their own pace you know, and sense what's happening inside their bodies. That's a big, big part of the conversation, you know. And and it also involves uh, the teachers not telling the students what they should be feeling Mm -hmm. because that takes you away from what you actually are feeling, and it may be different than what the teacher thinks is going to happen. So that's how to to open up that space in a group class for students to have that experience is, is a big part of what we consider to be good, just good teaching pedagogy. And, you know, more and more, it is happening out there. You know, we see it. We see it in the people who come to study here, and I see it in the places I go to teach when I travel to teach. You know, as the population ages and, you know, as these issues become more and more important, the, the teachers do want to have this information. They, they, they do want to learn some of the anatomy and, and some of the, you know, the, the more um, effective and safe teaching uh, methods. So I'm encouraged by what I see out there, not discouraged by you know, the, the injurious stuff. Can you talk about what constitutes a good cue and what would constitute something that wasn't so good if you were cueing someone in a... Uh, okay, so let's say we'll take downward dog because it's ubiquitous and it's an easy target and it is weight-bearing on the hands, you know. <clears throat> so uh, a less effective cue for that, I think, would be, okay, you're on your hands and knees, um, right, and now raise raise up into downward dog, press your heels to the floor, and now, <laughs> once the weight is on your arms, now we're going to find the alignment for downward dog, and you're going to mm-hmm. rotate your elbows behind your wrists and mm-hmm. draw your shoulder blades down your back and all mm-hmm. of that. And, and you you should feel you know, the weight coming off of your wrists and the stretch in your hamstrings or whatever, right? So what I've just done is I've described uh, how to get from a starting position into a shape called downward dog, and, and, and once the person is more or less in that shape with weight on their arms, then I'm asking them to find mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. alignment. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and I think that if you have to find the correct alignment for a pose once you're in the pose, you should reconsider how you got there in the first place. So the way I would cue that would be, okay, you're on your hands and knees. Let's come up off the hands for a moment. Let's come on our knees, and we'll stretch your mm-hmm. arms out to the side. Let's explore how our arms spiral in space, right, and mm-hmm. feel, your, feel them spiral so your palms are facing down, feel them spiral so your palms are facing up, right? And we'd go through that, and I'd say, can you feel if that movement is connected at all to what's going on in the top few ribs of your rib cage and the upper spine mm-hmm. and your head and your neck. Can you feel that there's a connection there that as you spiral down, your head wants to drop, and as you spiral mm-hmm. up, your head wants to lift, and that's cool. Okay, so you felt, you, you felt that. And then, so all of a sudden we're connected with the breathing, right? There's no mm-hmm. weight on our arms. You know, we're doing a big open chain movement with our, our hands and our arms. And so I say, okay, now can you feel that open spiral? Everything opens up and your upper ribs lift and your palms lift open. Good. Now can you keep that spiral in your body and just turn your palm towards the floor, right? So that's just that's, that's that spiral in the forearm. 
that's happening without letting everything else kind of collapse downward, right? That gives mm-hmm. a certain intensity. Are you doing this as I'm just saying? So hey, actually, certain, I am. I'm, I'm, right, that's kind I'm, of like a double spiral you just put into your, your arm. Now, once you've done that, can you flex your wrist back so your palm is facing the side wall, right? Can you feel how that sort of sucks the palm of your hand up towards your earlobes, right? And then can you keep that feeling as you bring your hands in front of you and bend your elbows slightly, and then can you lean over a little bit and just gently place the weight on your hands without losing that, that spiraling feeling we've, we've created in the arms? And from there, can you now, keeping that feeling, lift your butt off, you know, up in the air and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you're doing some preparation, you're doing some investigation, you're doing a little bit of awareness, you're creating the alignment in the arms before there's even weight on them. And mm-hmm. then once you have the person in the pose, you invite them to to feel what they're feeling. What 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 are you noticing, right? Rather than you will feel that. Yes. And so that's just one little difference in how we would approach a thing like down dog. So a long time ago I was talking with another teacher and they were sort of joking about this, but I thought it was a terrific idea. Well, they were thinking of doing a dogless yoga class. And I do that all the time. I think that's fabulous because yeah. even putting any weight on your hand, I recently had a problem with my pisiform bone, and it was like a knife was Just cutting. the one bone? Well, no, it was obviously connected with a ganglion cyst, but... You know, oh, okay. it, I could not even do table position, cat position, nothing. And it just yeah. reminded me of how incredibly um, sensitive and delicate the hand can be. And, of course, when we say hand, it's supposed we to be sensitive and delicate. That's its job. Sorry? It's the That's hand's a... job to be sensitive and delicate. Yes, and not to be weight-bearing. We're not, yes. you know, sledgehammers here. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so a lot of times when I'm teaching students, we just don't even go there because I know. Oh, um, sure. You, know, you accidentally brace yourself, and then you're you're feeling it for the next three days or three weeks or three months. And yeah, why even why even take the risk? And see, that's the point I was making about arm supports being at least intermediate level skills for most people. You know, yeah. the problem here. This is the problem, and, and you know, it's it's kind of a historic irony from a certain perspective. Um, Yoga started really, really exploding about, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago maybe. Um, in the, you know, the early 90s, right? Um, and the, one of the reasons for that was that this, you know, very uh, sort of athletic, sweaty form of yoga started to be practiced by, like, cool people. It was called Ashtanga mm-hmm. Yoga, right? And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh it, what, what it did was it got the attention of people that were running health clubs. Now, keep in mind, the fitness industry itself at that point was barely 10 years old. It was barely 10 years since people started calling fitness an industry. And, um, you know, they were always looking for the next thing. And, and so the idea that yoga could be an athletic kind of a workout was like a brand-new idea, but it was very, very exciting to people that ran group fitness and health clubs, and they wanted this in there. And so, you know, there was a, there was a lot of demand for teachers, which outstripped the supply, and that's eventually when we came up with the 200 and 500-hour standards for teacher training. So it really was kind of a domino effect in in terms of yoga eventually being called an industry by around the mid-'90s. But the the irony is that 
around the same time in history is when people started spending a lot more time on keyboards, whether it mm-hmm. was yeah. the yeah, computer yeah. keyboards or eventually the mobile devices. You know, and you make a good point in your in your information and in your books about the difference between interacting with a with a typewriter keyboard and a computer keyboard, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, right around the same time, when people were developing more and more of a, a propensity for developing RSI type things from these input devices, is when the very form of yoga that they're most likely to be exposed to when they go for help with these things is based on Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga, which passes everything through the Chaturanga up dog down dog, which are all arm supports, right? Tell people so, what chaturanga is. Chaturanga is stick pose. It's like it's like at the bottom end of a push up, right? Yeah, it's and like then, a yeah. Yeah. Bottom and up dog is like a flying cobra. You know, you have your hands on the yeah, floor and yeah. your, your your feet are down and your chest is up in the air. And then of course down dog is you know your ass is in the air and your head and your heels are down. So, mm-hmm. but these are all arm supports, is my point. And and so people want the athleticism of the flowing breath-centered vinyasa, which is great. You know, it actually comes from my teaching lineage, this way of teaching. Um, mm. But they can't tolerate the the weight-bearing in the arms. So the, 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 the dilemma, really, is how do you teach something that is flowing, that's challenging, that, you know, makes you sweat without all the arm supports? Most teachers don't know how to do that because mm-hmm. everything passes through this sort of sun salutation cycle that involves all these arm supports. Now, it's perfectly possible to do that. I have a way of teaching that's called the Warrior Series, which is all based on you know the, the standing stance of the warrior poses. But at no point during this entire very challenging series uh, do you have any body weight whatsoever placed on your upper extremities. I don't even let people use blocks you know, to put their hands on because they'll just end up gripping the block and putting their weight yeah. through there. I yeah. want their legs and their feet to be holding up their body weight. Mm-hmm. So there, there, are, there are ways. To, you just have to be more creative. You have to you know, think outside the box a little bit. And, and you know, we, we've been teaching these sort of things for a while now, and it's been catching on, you know. So, yes, a dog-free class is possible, and you can still get a good workout. And you said something earlier. You just slipped by it, but we cannot talk to you without talking about breath. Uh, of course. The role of breath. In well, my studio is called The Breathing Project, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so... Tell us how the breath connects with the poses. Okay, well, for one thing, the breath connects you with the poses, right? If, you're, if, you, if you maintain some level of awareness of what your breath is doing while you're practicing poses, it's taking your attention inward, okay? You're going to be less likely to be looking across the room and comparing yourself to other people or, or you know, trying to get your body to look a certain way. Because the breath is really a vehicle for taking your attention into your body, into the interior spaces, whether those are joint spaces or intramuscular spaces or breathing spaces or emotional spaces or even intellectual spaces. You know, I get all sorts of ideas about things when I'm practicing. You know, it's it's the vehicle that takes your attention inward. Mm -hmm. So that in and of itself is a value for all the things we've been discussing. Now, apart from that, the mechanics of breathing, it turns out, is a very important component of how you create these weight pathways through your body. Because if your breath is tight and obstructed and you're not doing it well, you're not going to be able to hold your weight through the parts of your spine that actually can do that well. 
you know, and we're talking about the front of the spine, the front of your spine where your vertebral bodies and your discs are is the weight-bearing mm-hmm. part of your spine. Now, the interesting thing is that when most people think they have problems with their spine, they say, I have a back problem, which mm-hmm. means the structures on the posterior side of the spine, their back, are getting aggravated, like all the erector muscles and the connective tissue in, in the back of the body that, that thinks it's holding you up gets, gets tired mm-hmm. and inflamed and aggravated. And, you know, if your sense of what holds you up in gravity is in the back of your body, that's a really good indication that you're not carrying your weight through the part of your spine that can do it well, which is the front part of your spine, which incidentally is accessible through your breathing because mm-hmm. your breathing is, is, is basically the activity that happens in your body cavities, your abdominal and your thoracic cavities. And it just so happens that the back of those cavities is the front of your spine. So it's a, it's, breathing is not just the way to access the sensory experience of what's going on inside your body. It's, it's a very practical way of finding the actual structures that you're trying to target for the weight bearing, which is the front of your spine. So there's a lot of other uh, things to talk about with the breath. Um, and, you know, I can do that, you know, sort of ad infinitum, but <laughs> it's probably best so I let you ask another question. <laughs> I think it's, well, I remember we were talking one day at the Breathing Project and you said, you can have a very poor teacher, but if they include the breath, <laughs> yeah. you know, the students are going to get a lot out of it. You know, just learning how to flow yeah. with the I breath. Think I, I think I'd actually just... tell you probably what the exact quote was because I say that a lot. I think it was probably something like, okay, um, teaching yoga is not rocket science, all right? And apart from any knowledge of anatomy or experiences a teacher a person may have, if they're asking you, to move and breathe at the same time and pay any kind of attention to the details of how you get that to happen, you can get tremendous benefit from a yoga class. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I tell well, I have found personally, you know, I'll be lying in a restorative pose. Mm-hmm. And there, really, the focus is so lovely because mm-hmm. it's kind of like all you have to do is breathe. And so you yeah. can watch, and you can watch, for instance, if you're in a supported spinal twist, they, oh, my goodness, my gills are opening up on the side that I'm not lying on. And, oh, I can breathe into, you know, the, you get the three, four-dimensionality of the um, the breath because you can feel the back body expanding, the side body in these various poses. And I have found that to be profound. You know, just... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, it was my first, very first experience in shavasana or corpse pose, as you describe, which for people who don't know is just lying on your back, relaxing. Uh, mm-hmm. In my very first yoga class, that that got me hooked. That's that's you know that was like a revelation for me as a 20 year old person who had never never laid down to do anything other than sleep or well whatever else you really? do in bed. But certainly, yeah, not you know like when would I have when would I have as a 20 year old laid down on the floor ever mm-hmm. to do something. Right. Or so, nothing. yeah. I mean, think about it. Which is harder than doing something, actually. I think. Yeah, and also you mentioned people. like watching the breath. You know, that's we can say that casually, lying on your back watching your breath. But you know, a watched breath, for the most part, is going to be a controlled breath, mm-hmm. right? And although we do learn to control our breathing quite a bit when we're doing yoga practices, whether it's asana or pranayama, which are the breathing exercises. Being aware of your breath and not controlling it, that's actually one of the hardest things to do. 
mm-hmm. to be the yes, observer of yes, breath yes. and just let it move naturally in your body. That's that's a puzzle that you know you can spend a lifetime solving if if you choose to to, to focus on it. And a great teacher. I, I think the breath, the breath absolutely. is one of the greatest teachers if you if you can do that, what you just one said. One of the greatest teachers of one of the greatest lessons we can have as humans, and the lesson is to be able to distinguish between the things that we can control and the things we can't control because our breathing is both of those. Uh, you know, we, we do have some voluntary control over our breathing, but also a huge uh, bunch of, of its activity, thankfully, is autonomic. We don't have to control it. We don't have to pay attention to it. You know, it keeps us alive when we're sleeping. So uh, the breath is that, and when we focus on it, it with, with any kind of attention and inquisitiveness and curiosity, uh, it teaches us that very, very important lesson. You know, how much suffering that we go through has to do with being confused about the difference between the things in life that we control and the things that we don't control. You know, that oh. that one lesson alone you can spend a lifetime working on. Well, just thank you for coming on the show. That was so brilliant. And I'm really <laughs> glad you said all that. Wait, is it over already? Oh. Is that it? I know. Well, you you're going to have to come back. I'm but sure. um, quickly, if people, yeah, I, I want to say thank you so much uh, for coming. And if anybody has sure. any questions, just email me at Blog Talk Radio, and I'll have Leslie back on the show, maybe even live. We'll we'll see about that. Well, but it, give me quickly, like call if people, in live, yeah. Sure. Yeah, if people want more information about you, what is your website? Well, my personal website is is pretty easy. It's yogaanatomy.org. So that's mm-hmm. yoga with well, all the a, yoga anatomy with all the A's in the spelling um, mm-hmm. .org, and from there you can link to the Breathing Project, which is the studio, and um, our online courses that we've set up, which are at yogaanatomy.net, and my blog and my teaching schedule and all that stuff. So that's kind of the portal is yogaanatomy.org. Yeah, well, and by the way, you've got a year-long anatomy course coming up, and it's available on on those websites that Leslie just Yes, well, the live one is just going to start in October at the Breathing Project here in New York. Uh, But the online ones go on forever, and they're accessible anytime, and people have lifetime access to that. So they live eternally uh, in the interwebs. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show, Leslie, and uh, thank everybody for listening. And remember to follow the show so that you'll be notified of new episodes. Maybe Leslie will come back. And until next time, this is Deborah Quilter signing off from RSI Help Radio in New York City. Bye for now.